You are Locked On Bucks, your daily podcast on the Milwaukee Bucks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. Backs him down. Giannis into the lane. Giannis spinning. Welcome to Locked on Bucks. I'm Eric Name, Milwaukee Bucks reporter at ESPN Milwaukee, ESPN Wisconsin, ESPN... Oh, I forgot again. I should have looked, but whatever. I'm in a hurry. But someone did say that they are from Burnham Wood, so shout out to them, Um, which is, I think, the last one that I used. Um, Joining me today... Frank is back. Uh, a long weekend plus an off day on Friday means it has been – it feels like forever since I've talked to you, Frank. The longest I've gone without talking to you in, I don't know, probably months, honestly, um, <laughs> which is a strange thing to say, but it, it is absolutely true. So how are you doing, Frank? I've just been loading up the hot take cannon, um, <laughs> which uh, it's it's actually a, a, in, in homage to uh, Matthew Delvadova. It, it is a – you know, Civil War era. Um, so there's just actually, one take. Rev- in no, wait, yeah, I've just been like, I just like one of those like, big cannonballs, and I'm just like carrying it slowly to my <laughs> cannon, and just like struggling to throw it in the front end of it, and then I've got like my, you know, matches or whatever, and it's windy out, and I'm kind of struggling to get the <laughs> get the light going. Um, I don't even know if ever any cannon cannon ever worked that way, but that's like in the cartoon version yeah, of my mind. No, that's I got it. I got it. Old. Revolutionary War, uh, Civil War cannons work. But, um, yeah, um, been interesting because, you know, we've had a few games happen since uh, since last week. I don't know if all that much has happened, you know, Bucks-wise. I know you talked about um, Giannis and, and awards or award snubs and stuff like that on, on Ooh, Friday. Let, let's get your thoughts on that real quick before we jump into other stuff. I, I, I wonder, did, were my thoughts kind of what your thoughts were? What, what were you thinking there? I mean, when I saw it, my first – well, so the all-defense stuff came out first, and he obviously didn't make either all-defensive team. Last year he made second team. Um, this year – I mean, you know, Zach Lowe and others have made the case that Giannis was a top handful defensive player of the year candidate. So yep. to not make either team, um, if we're purely talking about like who has the biggest impact on a game defensively, I think there's a good case to be made that Giannis is among the top handful of guys – um, Were you, you know, surprised then, Covington got so many votes? No, because I, I feel like that was the narrative all year, and I don't know. I mean, that, he, he's and, and the thing is too, it's like Giannis. Like if you if you wanted a guy to defend a guy on the wing and just like quote unquote shut him down or defend on the perimeter, I mean, Giannis really. I don't think Giannis is even really particularly good at that. I mean, obviously yeah. he's a four now, so he does a lot less of that. Um, but you know, Giannis doesn't really like. He, he's 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 more like a big man in the way he defends, I guess, in a lot of ways. Um, but obviously, he's still very, really versatile. So I think I think I'm not surprised that Covington was there, just because again, like you know, again, that a lot of, there was a lot of that narrative, and Philly was way better defensively than the Bucks. And to me, that was the big takeaway. Was certainly with the offensive team. I mean, 
I don't think I think AD the Pelicans were like 14th defensively, but I'm not sure. I was looking. I don't think anybody who made the first two teams was on a team that was in the lower half of the league defensively overall. And and that's and, pretty rare. I remember last yeah. year I wrote that article about Giannis's case for all defense, and the numbers are staggering in that you know, which makes total sense that you know bad defensive player or t- players on bad defensive teams don't get rewarded because well if they're so good defensively why aren't they having a greater impact so um yeah the, it, it is super rare to be on a bad defensive team and still get there um but Giannis did do that the year before and the bucks were even worse defensively that year before and i mean look covington was third in the league in defensive rpm this year i mean statistically there's a strong case that he is you know every bit as impactful sort of as the voters uh, suggested he would be he was only behind rudy gobert and andre robertson this year so um you know i don't want to uh i don't want to understate what what he what he brings obviously rpm you know has has flaws i mean Yusuf nurkic and david west were also in the top 10 so you know take it for what you will but um but look i mean nobody thinks covington is a bad defensive player like or not, sure. not even like a less than really good defensive player right so i, I you know, if you ask me to like pick off like who shouldn't have made it, I think yeah, I mean there's good cases for all those guys. Um, I think again, like next year, this is part of the reason why it would be nice for the Bucks to actually live up to their you know abilities defensively because I think it means that you know everybody looks better and and it means it's easier to give Giannis the the respect that I think he deserves in terms of uh, in terms of defensive stuff. So As I said, again. What- what's interesting to me is that I feel like all defensive team is like the one spot really anywhere where specialists are kind of rewarded if that makes any sense like it's not just the best players in the league while the best players are often the best defenders as well it's not a situation where it's like oh his only contribution is on the defensive side of the ball and with Giannis you're certainly I mean when you tick off all the things that he does I don't I don't know if you're going to put his on-ball defense in the top five. I don't know if you're going to put uh, his rim protection in the top three. Like, he's just kind of, you know, very flexible, very adaptable, and very Giannis in the same ways, you know, defensively that he is offensively. He can do a lot of different things, and because he can do all those different things, I I just think, and this, is, this speaks to stars as a whole, like unless you are – two-way star Paul George or two-way star star Kawhi Leonard like if you're just a solid you know two-way player like you're both very good offensively and very good defensively I think at times the defensive side can kind of get pushed aside when it comes time to vote for all defensive team yeah and I mean again you just kind of go down the the names I mean you know oh Jimmy Butler was the other guy that was the guy I think yeah. the one guy who, who whose team was bad defensively and again it's like Am I that bent out of shape about Jimmy Butler? Not really. But again, does Jimmy Butler have as big of an impact overall defensively as Giannis? I don't think so. Nope. I mean, again, just because he doesn't, he does, he's a perimeter defender and, you know, he doesn't rebound, he doesn't block shots. Um, he isn't disruptive in the same way. So, I mean, again, like, I think we can make a case here for a lot of these guys, but, you know, especially at the, in the front court spots, I mean, Rudy Gobert, I mean, clearly incredible defensively. Embiid's uh, defensive impact was incredible this year. You know, Anthony Davis, I think finally kind of these last like year or two now has become like actually as impactful as he, like, you thought he would be all these years. I mean, I, I think, think he had like a, four something stocks this year. Like he was yeah. everywhere. Yeah. And and again, like, you know, and then the second team is like Draymond and Al Horford are the f- other forwards on the second yep. team. I mean, you know, uh, 
tough to, to argue with when Horford was the, the linchpin of the, the number one ranked defense and Draymond is Draymond. So yeah, it's tough. Um, so I guess we'll see kind of next year, but again, like, you know, when for all defense, when your team isn't very good defensively, like it's kind of hard to, you know, be that up in arms again. I think Giannis is good enough, but whatever. And then I think as, as far as the all NBA team goes, um, I mean, this is like kind of those things. It's like, I, I mean, I think Durant kind of got, I think in a lot of ways you can argue Durant got, a first team spot sort of on reputation. Um, and he was, I mean, he's incredible. He was great this year again. Um, but you know, if you're just kind of going toe to toe with, with the numbers, obviously there are a lot of numbers that suggest that Giannis had a better year than, than Kevin Durant did. And, um, again, but Durant is, you know, uh, arguably the co-best player, one of the, at least one of the top two best players on, um, you know, a team that won 60 games. And, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's just kind of a different, it's kind of a different calculus with, with KD versus Giannis. And again, if the Bucks had won, you know, 49 games and been, you know, a top four seed, then I, I don't think there's any doubt that, that Giannis probably eclipses Durant and, and worms his way into, uh, into the first team. But, you know, again, when you're, when you're, kind of like the guy who's had, whose team has the worst record on um, i don't know if he i don't know do we, was there anybody on the first two teams that had a worse record than, than the bucks i don't think so necessarily um so it's it just kind of makes everything kind of harder again when your team isn't kind of clearly ahead of everybody but again this team success that that strives you know all the all the individual stuff you know it you're, you're going to benefit if you have that team success and i would say the other thing that I, I tend to you know just kind of find interesting were one i think if Giannis doesn't sit out as many games as he did late and again it's not a ton of games but i think he sits out three of the final 11 and in there there were some other games where he played but they, they weren't really playing him a lot I think if he plays and has some monster games late, that's when people are deciding on their votes and there's recency bias and all of that. And I think there's a chance that Giannis has some big games in there and maybe that reminds people of things. And then I think the other thing is just kind of the larger idea of what are you voting for when you're voting for that award? Because when I put it out there and then uh, Zach Lowe was on the jump that day talking about All-NBA and I tweeted out his quote and people were getting back to me like, well, there's no doubt that KD is a better player than Giannis right now. Like he's one of the two or three best players in the league. And it's like, yeah, I agree. But also in my from my perspective, that's not what this award's about. Like those awards are about the season that you had this year. Because if yeah. it was just a ranking of who the best players were, we could give it out at the start of the year and say, these are the 10 best players in the league. That's your all-NBA first and second team. And then we're not actually talking about the season that occurred. And uh, I just think uh, that's always uh, that just always exists, and it, and it always will. Like there, there is times where you're going to say, you know what, this guy – is just a very is just a great player, and you know maybe he missed some games, but he deserves this. And there there is like you said, maybe a little bit of reputation on Durant getting that one because I think you could easily argue that Giannis had a better season than Durant, and I think if you really wanted to, you could argue that Durant had a better season than Giannis. Like I think you can argue both sides, um, but the fact that it it could be an argument, but the voting didn't end up being that close, I think speaks a little bit to that reputation that Durant has. Yeah, and also, I mean, Durant played sixty-eight games, so you know, Giannis played what did what did seventy-five? I think it was seventy-five. Like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I don't think that's trivial. Um, I think again, you know, playing sixty-eight games, um, and it would have been think, even more significant. Yeah. Like I said, if he doesn't sit out those three in the final eleven, like yeah, seventy-eight yeah. to sixty-eight, if it's a ten-game difference as opposed to a seven-game difference, I think maybe it's a, a little bit different of a conversation. 
Yeah. No, it's it was it's kind of one of those things again. Like, um, if it was, let's just say this: if if it was another young guy who kind of, or, or another guy who maybe doesn't have Durant's reputation as being a top two or three player in the league, who put up those exact numbers, um, I, I don't know. Does that guy get get the nod over Giannis? I'm I'm not sure. Um, but uh, you know, it just sort of is what it is at this point. And um, as I tweeted the other week, you know. Uh, whatever like i i thought i'd care more about these sorts of things but at this point i mean i mean Giannis no. is in this conversation and he's going to be in this conversation for god willing a long time and i think a lot of me is just sort of like appreciative of the fact that like all of a sudden we have a player that we can legitimately complain about not getting first team all nba which is not something that you know i ever i ever really expected to 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 be able to talk about to be honest i mean this this still seems like it's kind of a kind of surreal thing so it's uh again these are these are good problems to have i think the anger could be more real as well if it wasn't lebron james and kevin durant yeah where you're just like yep yeah, okay yeah, i yeah. yeah it's gonna be tough for him to eclipse them because they're just gonna continue to put up well you would think at some point they'll stop doing it but at this point they show no signs of slowing down they're just gonna keep putting up ridiculous seasons and that just means Giannis has to put up even more ridiculous seasons and and try to get on top of that all right good I wanted to get your reaction I felt kind of guilty recording that by myself on Friday because I wanted to hear uh, kind of your perspective on it so I'm happy we got that I guess today, some things we wanted to get caught up on. One, I've had a bunch of people in my mentions asking about assistant coaches and, and what's going on there. And I, I guess the the thing I would tell you is, no, I, I don't know. I don't know what's going on there. I, I know that they're talking to people and they're trying to figure things out. And I guess this this will be the update that I can give. Like Michael Cunningham uh, from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution uh, reported last week, I think it was Monday or Tuesday of this past week, um, where he said one member of Boonholzer's coaching staff, Chris Gent, to remain with Hawks, others still uncertain. Uh, Chris Gent was the only assistant on Boonholzer's staff that was hired by Travis Schlank and not Mike Boonholzer. So I think that is of note. Um, in something that you know you should think about and then I guess that means and I listed this off and tweeted out but you know Darvin Ham, Bud's lead assistant there for five years Taylor Jenkins five years in Atlanta Charles Lee four years in Atlanta Ben Sullivan four years in Atlanta and then Patrick St. Andrews who was on the bench for one year but was serving in other roles for Boonholzer for four years before that so five years total for him as well um, all of those guys are in limbo right now and we don't really know if they will be returning and for the people asking and then for the people going even further saying why is this taking so long i will tell you i don't know if it's taking that long i i don't often monitor uh the length of time it takes to hire assistant coaches and create a coaching staff around a head coach i I don't know what that process looks like i don't know if that typically takes a day I don't know if that takes a week, two weeks. I don't know any of that. Um, But I do know that obviously Mike Boonholzer said he wanted to bring almost all of his staff along with him. So I assume that, you know, we'll get some news on that in the next week or so because as we well know, Mike Boonholzer is obsessed with player development. And I would assume that he wants his guys to try to get some contact with 
players, whether that's on the phone or in person. And I assume he wants to get to that. So I'd assume in the next week or so we hear something there. But I don't know for sure because I don't know how long this process takes. Uh, interesting. I mean, for reference, so in 2014, the Bucks hired Jason Kidd June 30th, um, which was after a few days of, you know, basically everybody when everybody knew he was coming over and there was just sort of the wrangling over compensation and all that. Um, Joe Prunty was not hired. Remember, Joe Prunty was uh, Jason Kidd's top assistant in Brooklyn. Joe Prunty was not officially hired until July 9th. So it took about it took no, it oh, took no about ten days. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And obviously, this that all took all took place much later uh, than uh, than what happened. You know, this time around, where it's, everything's happening in May rather than late June. But um, but yeah, I mean, again, like sometimes these things take time. Granted, you know, the other aspect of the kid thing was that was happening without really the nets being okay okay with the way everything was going down um whereas atlanta obviously has been in a different spot but again it's not like the hawks assistants were just you know kicked to the curb as soon as um as soon as mike budenholzer left so again i don't know exactly what the 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 situation is there but now that atlanta has their own coach obviously um you know you would expect that that those things are going to be figured out pretty quickly just because you know that the hawks you know that the Hawks now have a staff that they're building, and, and presumably everybody wants to figure this out as sooner, sooner rather than later. Yeah. So, uh, like I said, there's no, I can't tell you exactly how long it'll take. I just assume that it will happen in the next little while. So we will keep an eye on that. I really don't think there's any other Milwaukee Bucks news. Um, really haven't heard anything about Jabari Parker. Um, the closest tangential news, I would say to that is Marcus Smart saying that he's worth more than 12 to 14 million dollars a year. Um, I would say that's probably the best I can say for any news to, to do with Jabari, but I think it'll be largely a waiting game. Anything you can think of there? No, I mean, I, I think the other interesting piece, I mean, we know there has been some activity around the Bucks and pre-draft workouts. I think, interestingly, this year the Bucks have decided not to have really public you know, media available. I think we've talked about that. Yep. Um and the uh, so I, I think in general, the, the downside of that is that there's going to be a lot less of, you know, you're not going to go be going down there like you did in previous years to talk to prospects. And, you know, Billy McKinney's gone, but gone also are the days when Billy McKinney would have to break it to, you know, a, uh, a, a <laughs> an NBA center that he's not going to be. Uh, a small forward, which you know, all these guys always seem to, you know, shooting guards. Uh, you know, want to I'm save. like a three to five. I could probably handle a little. I could probably handle a little point if you needed me to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. None of those yeah. things. Like inevitably, shooting guards think that they can be point guards, and um, guys who are like fours and fives think that they can play the three and four, and that's just kind of how. By the way, I, I thought it was hilarious that DeAndre Ayton um, claims that he's an NBA four, which is like, yeah, dude, like. If you're an NBA four, then nobody should be picking you first first overall. <laughs> like, yeah, you're a seven footer who you know has some skill. Certainly, he does has shown an ability to shoot jump shots. But um, you know, yeah, you're you're an NBA five. Like I don't know don't if he was yourself. an NBA four twenty years ago. No, I think no, even I mean, then he was a five. Huge. Yeah, he's, he's like seven foot two sixty or something, isn't he? Like that? Yes, he's huge. It, it, to me, I'm, I'm always fascinated because to me. I always kind of like it. Always makes you wonder about these guys when they're like afraid to be centers or like they don't want to bang and they just want to like be fours and yeah. have easier lives or whatever. I mean, and granted, I mean, lots of guys have done that. I mean, Anthony Davis famously like doesn't really want to play center, and you know, just basically sort of like been forced to do it, especially with Marcus Cousins' injury. Um, but again, a lot of these kind of star players don't want to bang. I mean, 
you know, again, Giannis Dedekumbo. Like, does Giannis want to bang as a center uh, night in and night out? Probably not, no. right? I mean, that's only natural. But, um, you know, again, if you're seven foot two sixty, freak of nature, and you're clearly a you know an, a, a college center, NBA center, um, you gotta freaking embrace it, man. Come on. Yeah. Um, That actually, um, that kind of brings up um, something that I, I, it made me think of last year as I was watching, especially LeBron do all his LeBron things in willing the, the Cavaliers to another NBA Finals appearance. Um, and obviously just watching the Rockets and Celtics, or the Rockets and Warriors as well. Uh, we're recording here like an hour before Game 7 of Rockets um, Warriors happens. I We debated recording after it, but um, obviously as people know, my... My household has a very clear rooting interest for the Rockets. Uh, I'm not super optimistic, so part of me just wants to not even bother waiting for the game tonight. And I'm sure we'll touch on it, you know, this week after after things go down. But um, but I I thought it was interesting last night because there's been so much talk about ISO ball and how you know a lot of debate. I was just, is this really good for the game? Is this like attractive? And you know, it's interesting because I thought back first off, I thought back to a year ago when we podcasted during the Warriors Cavs finals and LeBron was, you know, putting up his crazy triple double numbers. Durant was obviously the, the finals MVP and had a terrific series. And, you know, there was a clear bias towards small ball and sort of this, you know, hyper um, switchable, hyper, you know, skilled lineups and sort of the, you know, the the continuing death of the big man. And you know, you might even trace back a little bit to, you know, the when the when the Thunder and the Thunder didn't just go small. Like it's not like Stephen Adams didn't play against the the Warriors a couple of years ago when when pre Durant mutiny um, they went up three one on the Warriors. But you know, so much of their advantage was that they could switch a lot of their players and and they had length and they could challenge the Warriors and things like that. And it's kind of interesting because I think a year ago, you know, I I made the I think I may have even said that I was giddy watching. Durant and LeBron just bulldoze, you know, rim protectionless lineups because I all I could sit with there and think was, man, this is like the ideal style of play for someone like Giannis, who is even bigger than those guys, can provide some rim protection, can play kind of like a big man, but obviously can also drive. And, you know, if in a league that is increasingly losing rim protectors, um, what better environment for a player like Giannis to thrive in. And obviously we saw that that manifested throughout this season. And I, I remember we discussed last year, well, how, you know, how much of what we were seeing last year was actually going to be reflected in what we saw in the regular season. Like how quickly or, or at all does does what you need to do to beat the Warriors actually turn into what you need to win on, you know, a Tuesday in January against a random team. And I think what's interesting is that we've continued to see sort of the sort of, you know, dispersion of of that style kind of filter down. And you look at these last these last four teams in the playoffs. I mean, you know, first off, the Rockets have embraced sort of switchability and, um, you know, obviously this sort of like isolate attack weaknesses type style, not just sort of like selectively, but you know, teams have just given up on trying to defend them in pick and rolls traditionally. Like everybody switches against them. So basically that leads them to do a lot of ISO stuff. And I feel like a lot of times people kind of like act like the, the the Rockets just want to do ISO all the time. Whereas I think a lot of it is driven by the fact that defenses just say beat us that way. Um, 
and they don't let them run those Capella pick and rolls the way maybe they you normally do or have done previously. I mean, you still see it sometimes, obviously, but um, but both teams have obviously like you know the Rockets and Warriors have both done tons of ISO ball because the teams have just switched and you just they take you out of kind of your normal like offense, your normal pick and rolls, your normal stuff that you'd want to do just because a lot of that just isn't as easy to run against switching defenses and. Likewise, for you know, in the other series, um, Boston has has actually played like Horford and Baines together at times. We saw the them do that against the Bucks as well. Um, but you know, for the most part, I mean, the Cavs, you know, have have also tried to play a little bit of of double big lineups with like you know Love and and Thompson. And Thompson has actually found his way back into the lineup a bit here after kind of losing his way. But for the most part, I mean, guys who have played are guys who can who can switch. I mean, Baines. I mean, Baines played good defense one-on-one against LeBron at times, yep. like in, in that game seven. I mean, LeBron was like taking difficult shots against Aaron Baines. Like so much of, I think what we're seeing now is predicated on, you know, big men who can switch. I mean, Thompson obviously has always like been a guy that, that could do that better than a lot of guys. But, um, but so much of obviously what we've seen from these last teams in the playoffs is, you know, can you switch? Can you force teams to try to ISO and then, you know, is the other team good enough to ISO? Because that's a hard way to win, right? I mean, it's one thing for the Rockets with Paul and Harden to win with ISOs. It's one thing for, you know, even you know, the Warriors to do that with Durant. But most teams, they can't beat you with ISOs. So that, that in a lot of ways, makes this style of defense potentially even more attractive against other teams than, than potentially even these ones. So I, I just couldn't help but think, like, watching this, that we're seeing this kind of continued evolution. And part of me just sort of wonders, I mean, in two or three years – how many teams can even afford to play like traditional big men more than, you know, 25 minutes a game or 30 minutes a game or whatever it might be. Right. I mean, it's one thing if you have Rudy Gobert, right. I, I understand you're not going to play, you know, pure switching defense. If you're, you know, you're, you're Quinn Snyder in Utah, if you're Brett Brown and you have Joel Embiid, you're probably not going to do that. Right. But for the most part, you look at the best teams in the league now, with the exception of Philly, because Simmons is a guy who obviously can't really shoot. So, you know, I think there's some good arguments there that you can do different things defensively, um, you know, pick and roll and with Embiid. Uh, you know, I don't think you want to necessarily switch there. And he's not a, a great shooter, you know, as a, as a pop man yet. But pretty much against all the other teams, it seems like the dominant strategy is becoming switching. And I just can't help but wonder if you're if you have any ambition of being a, a great defensive team, of being a contender I mean, when you show up for training camp this September, are is there any reason for you to not be making this kind of your like at least your co-primary defensive tactic? Because what I mean, we're seeing it from the Rockets. They did this all year long, and now it's working. I mean, it's not just that they're doing it because they have to. They're doing it, and it's working against the Warriors. And the Warriors are having it work to a large extent against the Rockets, the two best offensive teams in the league. We saw Cavaliers and, and Celtics have rock fights in their series as well. Um, is there any reason? I mean, if you're, you know, Eric, obviously Mike Budenholzer is, is sort of the key, you know, lens through which to view this for the Bucks. But in general, I mean, is is traditional pick and roll defense or traditional defenses like dead? Like, I mean, wh- what are you doing if you're a head coach going into next training camp when you're seeing all the best teams eventually come down to needing to be able to switch to compete at the highest level? Yeah, I'm trying to remember who it was that that put this out. I couldn't. I was just doing a Twitter search as you were talking about it, but uh, one of the analytics guys I follow had put out a switchability rankings, or like the teams that switch most type of rankings, and the final four were the four teams that switch most. 
like this entire season and again Cleveland was terrible defensively so so don't get me wrong in saying that they are they're some sort of model for the defense that you want to play but that's I mean I just think if you are truly trying to force isolation and you're truly trying to make the other team beat you uh, one-on-one I mean if you have the athletes for it and you can execute I just don't really see a, a better option, especially with as pick and roll heavy as this league has become. I just think even 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 in Milwaukee, where I'm not a hundred percent sure that they did it. Actually, I am a hundred percent sure they didn't do it barely barely at all the entire season. That is just not something that the Bucks did. And games three through six against Boston, they said we are switching everything. And they switched everything, and the Celtics just got totally confused uh, on what they should be doing. And again, now they've gotten better at it as they've had to do more of it. But in that series, the Bucks had pretty much shut them down. They, they just weren't playing very good offense. And then in Game 7, again, still unexplained why they got away from that. But in Game 7, they went back to you know, a little bit of high hedging and then recovering and not switching and going back to more base pick and roll coverage and they got ran off the floor and i i just think when you look at how the game is being played offensively i think there's only one answer defensively plain plain pick and roll whether you decide to trap or whether you decide to sink I just don't know if that's if either of those ideas can be played in the NBA at this point because if you do trap, teams are so good at the four on three, and it I mean it really all started with Draymond Green. What is that three years ago now? Um, in that playoffs where David Lee started short rolling his pick and rolls uh, in a blowout, and then all of a sudden they're like, oh, we should do that all the time, and Draymond just tore up the Cavaliers defense and and that was that and from there that's kind of how the the Warriors figured out how to play defense and or excuse me how they figured out how to break defenses down and then when you look all over the league like that is a skill that if you've if you think about NBA basketball and the way that teams played it was it, it used to be all right rim runner we're gonna throw them right at the rim we're gonna try to pulverize that backside helper and then you know maybe we can throw a skip or we can have some other action off that and now it's to the point where no let's beat that backside helper if you're going to stay in the middle of the floor we're going to short roll our big he'll catch around the free throw line and then he can make the kick to the corner he can attack he has a four on three and that's a skill now where uh, i'm trying to think was this i don't even think it was this past season i think it was two years ago that the bucks were playing whatever team Jason Smith was on. I can't remember at this point. But Jason, Washington? Maybe Washington? I can't remember. But Jason Smith short rolled into the middle, made that play for a corner three, and it might have been Washington. Maybe it was like Brad Beal had a three. And I just looked at Alex Boulder. I'm like, this is a different NBA. Like We're not – this is a different game if Jason Smith can make that play. If that's the caliber of center that can make that play, then every center – can make that play and i just think it essentially renders any trapping scheme totally useless 
So if you're trapping, you can't do that. If you're sinking, teams have gotten to a point where they're very comfortable with their guards shooting off of the three. They will just get into those areas and, you know, shoot off the screen and hit a three on you. And that's a killer. Or they'll find their way in there. They'll wiggle in. They'll uh, do the Chris Paul, stick your butt out at the big trying to recover or the guard trying to recover, get into the middle and cause damage that way. Like, I just think with as pick and roll heavy as the NBA is, I don't know if you can do any of those other defenses anymore. Uh, And I think you're bringing up a good point. I, I think you do have to wonder kind of how that affects the game. And I think that question is incredibly uh, relevant in Milwaukee because as I've talked about on this podcast, we've heard that Mike Boonholzer is adaptable. And I'm not here to disagree with anyone that said that. I know Zach Lowe, the the night the Bucks officially made it official, and he said, you know, he's adaptable. They went from very aggressive to conservative. I'm not here to disagree with that. I'm just saying the adaptability that he's shown has not included switching. That he has not shown any looks as a switch-heavy defense. At times, don't get me wrong, Millsap, I think, is used to switch some stuff. Horford used to switch some stuff. They've done that at times, but I, that hasn't been a base-type defense, and I think that's a really relevant question to ask as we watch these two conference finals and see only that. Well, it's also difficult, too, because, I mean, three years ago, uh, you know, we, we, we've heard that, well, they, they did switch more if, you know, Harford or Millsap was on the floor. But, I mean, when when Budenholzer had those guys, teams didn't switch everything. <laughs> like, yep. things have changed so quickly as well that, um, you know, again, I, it kind of goes back to some conversations we've had about, like, Tom Thibodeau and, and others, Stan Van Gundy. Um, you know, the guys who were the visionaries of defense five years ago, even three years ago, four years ago, the same formulas don't necessarily work in today's game. And, and it's interesting how quickly kind of things change. And, you know, we'll see if there's any type of, you know, if, the, if this is kind of a really macro, broad, secular trend or if there's, you know, maybe a, a bit of patchiness in it. Maybe we see some things kind of come back. I mean, I think it's important to note that, you know, team like the Spurs, team like the Celtics, I mean, they have not just played uniformly small and switchy, right? Yeah. Um you know, a team like the Rockets has trended playing smaller and smaller. Um, this year, you know, Ryan Anderson has completely fallen out of their rotation entirely because he really can't play that style. Um, they really play one center consistently, and then they kind of, depending on matchups during the season, they played Nene um, and others sort of at times. But for the most part, you know, they've they've tended to play small with Tucker and Bamute playing a lot of minutes at the big spots. Um, but teams like the Celtics have done better and have been able to play bigger um the spurs have probably the best example they've played big for years now and have been really good defensively and there are arguments for why that has continued to work and you know again it's a little hard to say too just because like obviously this year's spurs just weren't talented enough to even be in the conversation here at the end of the season um and, you know, I, I think it'll be interesting to see. I mean, Philly will be interesting to watch. Um, I think some of the other teams will be interesting to watch. You know, if it, are, will there be any teams that have multiple big guys that they want to keep on the court and thus they play bigger and they play differently than, you know, Rockets and, and Warriors and some of these other teams? Uh, so a lot of it depends on personnel. But as you said, I mean, if you're, the, if you're looking at the Bucks, um, 
it's not just a question of, well, you know, that stuff works for the Rockets and the Warriors because they have that personnel. I mean, <laughs> Thon Maker is is not going to be maximized being a zone drop big man, right? He was made um, to switch. He was made to switch. I mean, again, and, and I think you're going to have to be able to do different things, right? I mean, we, we see Brad Stevens, you know, does things that, that as a rule you wouldn't want to do. I mean, we've seen... You know, the the Celtics will double the post sometimes. The Celtics will occasionally trap. The Celtics will occasionally do different things, obviously. Um, and, you know, we saw in the Rocket series as well. I mean, we saw Trevor Reza as a screen and roll man at times have some success because the Warriors, again, just didn't purely switch everything. They did, you know, double or they did kind of, you know, meet at the at the level of the screen at times. And, and you know, but but for the most part, we, we can kind of see a trend and kind of what's worked work, what has worked best. So. I think if you look at the Bucks and you say, you know, your two most interesting big, big men defensively are Giannis Adetokounmpo, who I don't want to take for granted because, you know, we don't think of them necessarily as a real center at this point, but we'll see. I think that's obviously a huge question going into the season. Does Mike Budenholzer begin to leverage him more as a center in ways that the previous regime just could not figure out how to do it successfully? Um, but then obviously Thon, right? I mean, unlocking Thon is going to be a huge storyline for, I think, whether this team kind of is able to make a, a leap into, you know, the contenders in the East, just because they have so few ways of, of really adding big time talent otherwise. And the first thing to do is get the most out of the guys on your roster. And obviously Thon is a guy who for the most part this year was a bad player who hurt you. <laughs> like, yep. I mean, flat out. And we had games where he actually did help you and he was able to harness his energy and, you know, the skill sets that he has to actually help you. Um, but that's a huge swing. If if you know you go from getting twenty you know twenty minutes of Thon Maker being really not very playable and hurting you actively to twenty to twenty five minutes. Not even, let's not even assume a ton of minutes, but twenty twenty five minutes of him being max energy Thon Maker like we see in the playoffs <laughs> every year, um, and stretching the floor a bit, and you know being able to be a difference maker, especially defensively. Then that's just a different. That's a, it's, I don't want to say it's a different team, but it does change, I think, the ceiling of this team somewhat appreciably. And it changes the way that they can play because if Thon Maker is getting a lot of those, you know, if it's 25 minutes of Thon Maker and, you know, 10 or 15 minutes of Giannis, and then you're really only playing a handful of minutes maybe with traditional bigs otherwise, you can do fundamentally different things defensively than if you're playing John Henson 30 minutes, right? Because yep. um, John Henson isn't going to do the same things that, that, uh, that Thon does. So, I, yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting. And again, I, I mean, I think this is probably the one, this is probably the first um, Bucks Twitter war of 2018-19 that I'm prepared for, which is, you know, do the Bucks embrace more of that sort of Rocket-style heavy switch defense and or, or do they play more traditionally? Because, again, I imagine, you know, and again, Mike Bunozer may join you know join the wave of of switching that we've seen in the league um but again historically like most coaches he hasn't done it he hasn't relied on it very heavily um and if he doesn't you know can they get it to work and obviously he's been successful before really this past season he'd been successful over the years with the way that they've played defense but again it's a new era and i think the other thing too is you know we've heard so much about you know, one of the things we've talked about often is, well, if the, if the other team throws the ball in the post, just let them let them do that, right? Because post scoring is not effective, right? Yeah. For the most part, ISO scoring. If they want to just try to beat you with ISO, well, 
let him do it. Um, and that's what I think is so interesting because Houston has sort of turned it on its head. And I remember watching a game in Portland kind of midway through the season and Portland, Portland made such a pronounced effort to not ever to not help and not kind of play traditional pick and roll defense. And they basically just said, all right, you guys are just gonna have to kill us one on one. And so James Harden and Chris Paul went out and killed them one on one. But that was really one of the I, I, and again, I watched most Rockets games this year. I felt like that was sort of a turning point game in a lot of ways because Portland and, and Terry Stotts has been known to kind of, you know, not double in the post and sort of force teams to play in ways that theoretically aren't efficient. But the Rockets are so talented with Harden and Paul that they can win games playing iso ball. They can win games. If you try to say we're going to stay home on our shooters, fine, I'll. You know, if you're going to just stay home with my shooters and I can't pass to them, then I'm going to just kill you one on one. And, you know, it's I can be more effective as an isolation scorer if if you're not going to send help. So I think it'll be interesting because, again, most nights in this league, you know, the Detroit Pistons, if they try to kill you with iso ball, are probably not going to be very successful. Right. Um, The Houston Rockets might. The Golden State Warriors might. um, you know, any team with LeBron James might be able to do that against you. But for the most part, that's generally not going to be a recipe for success. And again, the switch heavy, the switch heavy defense, if you don't have those really obvious weak links that you can exploit, you know, it's one thing if you kind of get John Henson matched up one on one 20 feet from the basket against a, a guard who's super quick. But if that's Thon Maker, if that's Giannis, um, it does change the game a fair bit. And and again, I I'm not going to say it's like that's the simplest easy you know, well it is the simplest solution but I'm not going to say it's necessarily easy because you've pointed out that you know getting a really well honed switching defense is, is not like just child's play but that's another reason why you shouldn't be planning on oh we'll just do that in the playoffs <laughs> <laughs> like, you know yeah. like you, you got to practice this this has to become you know a core of, of how you defend and um, again I think the way the league is trending and also the personnel that the Bucks have I mean you're not no one no one should feel like, man, we gotta figure out a defense that lets John Henson play twenty five minutes a game, right? I mean that that's not the goal. Um and especially with now with the way this roster looks, um, you know, you you're this isn't the team of a couple of years ago where you had like eighteen centers that you're paying fifty million dollars to and you have to figure out a way to play traditional centers. You're now actually kind of becoming less and less obligated to play in a way that traditional that exploits sort of the way traditional centers want to play. So again, make the best of it and hopefully that involves a lot of Giannis and and Thon playing defense and playing it differently than than we maybe we've seen it previously you're betting on the first twitter war for bucks twitter to be based on <laughs> philosophical <laughs> tactical differences i'm gonna go with does jabari parker suck that'd be my guess oh, I, okay. I think that's well, typically the level of uh discourse that occurs uh when there's a big say, uh, Dally, twitter Dally, war I, yeah someone's yeah, gotta say, suck like, Dally Dally sucks that was that was gonna be my first that was gonna be when you were just saying that i was just like oh well, well okay actually we're just gonna talk about how Dally sucks but i don't know if it's is it a Somebody, war if nobody really if nobody really fights that hard against oh tony that, snell sucks a, let's do that one yeah hey, tony snell sucks yeah yeah, yeah. that's the because it's always going to be someone sucks. Like they they can't philosophical stuff. Get out of here, Frank. That's not going to happen. Uh, all right, I, I think that's enough for today. Uh, but I, I think it, it's very interesting because it, the Bucks do have to figure out what. I mean, that's something I talked about in the lead up to hiring a coach. The Bucks have to figure out what their identity is, and they have to execute their identity night in, night out, and finding a defense that you can actually execute. If you're going to be a defensive team, which 
Mike Boonholzer, I, I think, has made pretty clear like that will be his goal is to be a defensive team. You have to find something that you can execute, and I think you really have to find something that can work in the playoffs. Like you, you shouldn't be in a spot where you need to totally change your defensive tactics to find something that will work in the playoffs. That, that's a very dangerous game to play. It's a game that the Bucks ended up playing this year um, and had it work out for four games and then the other three games where they didn't execute uh, their changes quite as well, it didn't work out. So um, we will we will see what happens there. All right, Frank, that is going to be it for us for today. For Frank Men, I'm Eric Name. This has been Lockdown Bucks. We'll talk to you tomorrow. All right, see you, buddy. Later.